0: Welcome to the lean blog podcast, visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now here's your host, Mark Graben.
1: Hi, I'm Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 380 of the lean blog interviews podcast. This episode is um, different. I would say it's, it's special because it's being released um, during uh, a special week on leanblog.org. So I've um, handed over the blog. To Deandra Wardell. She is a lean professional um, like myself. She's a black woman, unlike myself. And she's invited and, and recruited um, a number of guest authors who are writing posts all this week on themes of continuous improvement and what Deandra is calling hashtag root cause racism. So these posts are gonna be appearing through August 14th. Deandra and I are going to be hosting a, a panel webinar discussion on these themes. So you can find all of this by going to leanblog.org slash RCR or leanblog.org slash Root Cause Racism. So the only thing I'm publishing on the blog this week is this podcast. And I'm very, very pleased to be joined by Dr. Randall Pinkett and Dr. Jeffrey Robinson. So I want to tell you um, about... Each of them Um, randall pinkett is an entrepreneur. He's a speaker He's an author and community servant He's a co-founder chairman and ceo of his fifth venture called bct partners a multi-million dollar management technology and policy consulting firm In newark, new jersey He's a Rhodes scholar. He was a college athlete and he holds five academic degrees from rutgers oxford and mit One of those degrees at MIT is from uh, a program I attended, uh, the Leaders for Global Operations program. And Randall was a student um, there uh, a year before me. So he has a a BS in electrical engineering. He has a PhD in media arts and sciences from the MIT Media Lab. And you may recognize the name or you may definitely recognize his face because he was uh, the first and the only uh, black winner of the TV show, The Apprentice. So we will um, get some of Randall's thoughts on that during today's episode. And we're joined uh, by Randall's co-author, Jeffrey Robinson. He's an award-winning business school professor, international speaker, and entrepreneur. Since 2008, he's been a leading faculty member at Rutgers Business School, where he's an assistant professor of management and entrepreneurship and the founding assistant director of the Center for Urban Entrepreneurship and Economic Development. He has a MS from Georgia Tech in civil engineering management and a PhD in management from Columbia University. And together, they are the authors of the book, Black Faces in White Places. So that's gonna be the core for a lot of our discussion today, talking about the book, talking about what organizations can and should do today and in the future. And um, also want to mention their upcoming book, Black Faces in High Places. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you want to find links um, to more information about both of my guests, Dr. Randall Pinkett and Dr. Jeffrey Robinson, you can go to leanblog.org 380. Well, again, we are joined today by Dr. Randall Pinkett and Dr. Jeffrey Robinson. Thank you both so much for being here.
0: Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah.
1: So, you know, we're, we're, we have a lot um, you know, I'd like to explore today. And, you know, the two of you, of course, as, you know, the authors of um, your book, Black Faces and White Places. Um, I, I was wondering if first you know, if I can ask each of you to explore a little bit, you know, a question around, um, as, as you discussed in the book, is America colorblind? You know, I find a lot of people, particularly white people, like to say things like, I don't see color." Is America colorblind at this point?
0: Well, I'll take the first, the first, uh, first swing at the plate here and say that uh, America is absolutely not colorblind. Let's be unequivocally clear; uh, it, it is not. And the 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 issue is that many people are duped into believing that colorblindness is somehow aspirational. Uh, as if that's where they should aspire to be, or if they've arrived there, that they're in a good place and now they need not go anywhere else. Uh, whereas we would argue that uh, not only do we want you to see color uh, because of its beauty, because of the diversity, because of the celebration of color. Uh, but we don't want you to also fall victim to the the ancillary conclusions one might draw if you really believe colorblindness is the goal but you mean you might believe that the workplace is a meritocracy that everyone's treated fairly that we only hire the best and brightest that everyone has equal opportunity to succeed but then I ask you to look at the data the data will tell you that at you know managerial levels executive levels uh c-suite boards you know, uh, African-Americans are grossly underrepresented, which means somebody's seeing color because people are being denied opportunity based on their color. And whether that is explicit that you are intentionally discriminatory or prejudiced and the like, or implicit, meaning it is you're well-intentioned, but your actions belie your intentions and the impact is otherwise. Either way, the end result is the same.
1: Jeff. yeah
2: i'd only add one or two things to that i mean every research study that uh, looks into these things just just shows the preponderance of evidence as as the lawyers like to say um uh, that there is is bias uh, in many different systems i mean all kinds of institutions um and, and of course you know we've focused a lot of our of our work on on the business world and thinking about how the business world is impacted by Uh, You know, by by these implicit and sometimes you know not implicit, sometimes explicit bias. Uh, You know, there's a real strength in diversity. So, uh, to be colorblind, you know, doesn't allow us as a society to to really appreciate and respect um, the the peoples who are coming to the table. Um, And there's an authenticity we can all bring when uh, we know that our our diversity is really a strength.
1: And when, when you, you mentioned look at the data and you look at outcomes, which are measurable, undeniable, the question then traces back to the causes of inequity in outcomes. Um, what, what are your thoughts on you know, organizations today? Um, has explicit bias been sort of pushed underneath the surface and, and replaced with more implicit bias in terms of like people have learned, not to say overtly racist things, does that then lead to a more hidden or insidious form of bias?
2: Well, it, it certainly can. It certainly can. And I mean, just, you know, the sort of the classic examples are uh, in, in recruiting. You know, you're, you're talking about who you're going to hire. Um, and, you know, there's been several studies that have just, just done the, the name associations um, and biases that come straight out of what our impressions or our our thoughts are about a particular person's name. Oh, that person must be of that ethnic background. And then what happens in the back of a person's mind is, well, is that somebody I want to work with? Maybe not. Well, again, the other evidence is that where people live, we, we live in often live in very uh, segregated neighborhoods or it, it said it differently. We live in neighborhoods with people just like us, whatever just like us is uh, what that whatever that means to you, and uh, and so you 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 bring to the table some of the, um, the these biases when we look at resumes when we are recruiting where we go to recruit how we ask questions how we interact with people in terms of microaggression so you know, all of that factors into it and you know a lot of the work that uh, you know Randall and I and others are doing is to try to re-engineer that for for companies help them to uh, see those biases and to uncover them uh, because they just reinforce patterns that that what we have said in society is that these are not patterns you want to replicate but then we see it and we continue to see it and then we see tragic things that happen like uh, George Floyd and and other things so these are the kinds of uh, um, insidious patterns we're trying to break
1: and Randall you were nodding pretty vigorously what would you like to add
0: no, no, nothing to add. I think Dr. Robinson. I think Jeff Jeff spoke perfectly to the question.
1: Yeah, and I mean, as a follow up, you talk about um, you know recruiting, and I mean, it seems like some companies, in, let's say for example, Silicon Valley, have come to realize that the idea of hiring for what they would call cultural fit ends up being a really bad idea for different reasons. In terms of hiring people who are like you, people who come from the same background as you, can can you talk a little bit? Either we talk about that dynamic and you know why it's important for companies to try to break some of that cycle or what they how they can go about that
0: yeah there's a, I think a social psychological principle called homophily and homophily is the idea that we are naturally drawn to people who are like us it's it's, it's human it's natural and there's not anything necessarily wrong with that tendency uh, you think of the old adage birds of a feather flock together uh, But it does become problematic when we have an inability to connect with people who aren't like us That's when it becomes problematic when we only and and in corporations And and we've seen this in our work at, at bct certain departments certain roles certain functions certain levels Begin to get stereotyped for people with certain profiles certain schools uh, certain ethnicities certain genders and you can get into engineering versus executive suite versus Managers versus finance and the list goes on and how we can get caught in these patterns of Association of who is a good to your point mark, which I thought was a good one. Who's the right cultural fit? very subjective very easily uh, 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 To o- very easy to overlook those who traditionally may not fit the the stereotype. And so that's why we we advocate more formal measures of ensuring that there's diversity of perspective and diversity of who's being considered. So we talk about diverse panels for interviews, so you have people who can look at the candidates from different angles, different perspectives, but also having diverse panels of who's being interviewed so that we can ensure that no one's being overlooked and no one is falling victim to uh, what can be uh, akin to groupthink. when we think about who's qualified and who's not.
1: Right. So, you know, in in the book, um, Black Faces and White Places, you know, one one thing that struck me as a white face is the the, the privilege, if not the luxury, of thinking of places. You know, there, it's very rare, I think, of professional um, circumstances when I have been the only white face in the room. Um, so, you know, in, in, in the book, you talk about the burden of, of being, you know, a company's Jackie Robinson, the first black person in a certain role or first black person in the organization. Can, can you share, can, can maybe each of you share a story about that to help us understand that perspective?
2: Yeah, it's uh it, it, to be the only one or the first one, uh, <laughs> and, and and I can think of s- several situations where in 2020 you, the uh, Wharton School of Business has its first um, woman as dean, who is also an African American, also the first African American. It's 2020, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and and there are certainly other schools. Um, you know, sort of in the upper echelon of business schools that haven't even achieved that yet. And it's 2020. They're the first, the first person. And I know um, Dr. Erica, uh, Erica James, you know, very well. And um, I I know the you know, interesting thing about um, who she is and what she's able to accomplish. Uh, I know she's a fantastic candidate and she's this is not her first deanship, but, but I also know that when we talk to people who've who've been in similar situations, and we we, we reflect on our own experience, um, we we think about these four dimensions of the uh, of what we call the black faces and white places experience. Um, and some of it has to do with your identity: who am I in this situation, and um, you know how how do I you know, position myself? Um, it, it's about meritocracy. It's wondering the question: Are people looking at me? And are they going to give me the benefit of the doubt like they would everybody else? Are they going to give me um, and judge me on my merits? Uh, It's about this colorblindness we were talking about before, whether society or the people you're interacting with um, is going to be uh, colorblind or are they going to be really color brave, which to steal a phrase from Melody Hobson. And then um, there's opportunity. Um, where, where, Where are my opportunities? Do I have the same opportunities as everybody else? I mean, these are, it's kind of, an interesting dynamic where you are thinking about these things and maybe not even articulating them but you're thinking about it and while you're doing that you're also trying to um you know achieve the the goals you have for your professional life uh it's, it's a lot of work a lot of mental work that goes on often uh to be the, the first one or the one of a few in a situation like that
0: yeah no and I, and I, uh i may tell a story other than my own because i think it's actually more powerful than my own but i will say that part of the impetus for the book, Black Faces in White Places was that uh, Jeffrey's experience and my experience is that we've been black faces in white places for uh, the majority of our lives, growing up in predominantly white neighborhoods, going to predominantly white public schools, going to Rutgers University where we were uh, a handful of african-americans in the engineering school and then for him, Columbia Georgia Tech for me MIT Oxford the list goes on But, uh, but I remember when uh, Jeff and I were involved with the the National Society of black engineers uh, Jeff ran the the national convention and one of the speakers we brought in was dr. May Jameson Who was the first african-american woman to go into outer space also an engineer and she told this story about how when she was young she would tell people that she had this dream of going into outer space, and they would tell her, "What makes you think that they're going to let a brown girl go into outer space?" Uh, but the beauty of her story was getting back to this idea of being modern-day Jackie Robinsons was that she never listened to the naysayers, and, and that's part of the that's the that's the flip side of being uh, underrepresented is that you you may not see examples or role models who have blazed the trail. And so, you know, you're, you're it. (laughs) You're the one to set the example. While that's challenging. It also in some ways is very empowering because it allows others to be inspired. And I know her, her remarks that day inspired me to say, well, if if that Brown girl from the sixties could go into outer space in the eighties, then I need to make sure I I step up my game for the nineties and into the new millennium.
1: Um, Jeff, could, could you elaborate a little bit more on you know that on, you, you use the phrase "color brave" and, and and kind of help contrast that to to being colorblind?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Melody Hobson um, from um, Aerial Capital kind of made this this phrase in a, in a TED Talk that she was talking about, and you know she she pointed out what you did earlier, which is you know, to be colorblind doesn't um, doesn't help the situation. That. Just ignores what's uh, what's out there and it ignores a lot of things, but to be color brave um, has to do with thinking about how all of these colors can come together, um, valuing the 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 tapestry um, the rainbow the however, whatever metaphor you want to to use and, and sort of fit in there, but um, it is uh, how you will acknowledge and respect and engage with. Um, the wonderful colors that are are in front of you, um, but but you know Randall talks about this one a lot. Maybe maybe he should add some more to that. Uh, well, it.
0: Well, it, it's an inspiring TED talk. I mean, I mean, I, I just produced my own video, uh, candid conversations with a black businessman, which is uh it's on YouTube, and I I, I reference Melody's TED talk in that in that uh, video, uh, and to me the the the, the big takeaway is 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 not, is not shying away from bold conversations about race. And I've found in this moment, uh, the, the uh, post-George Floyd era, as it were, that I find Black people have become more emboldened, but I have found whites to, to have become more reserved, uh, uh, afraid of engaging in conversation for fear of saying the wrong thing or being labeled a racist or being judged or putting their foot in their mouth the list goes on so you know i want to just call out mark and just applaud you for reaching out to us to have this conversation i don't know whether it was a comfortable place for you to go or not but i
1: i I commend you for going there regardless um, to have this dialogue well i'm 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 in the midst of facing those fears and trying to work through them because you know i think you know and you know and and i think you know we often want to say well We want to treat people fairly, but that doesn't mean glossing over differences in, in culture. And and in the book you talk about, if you explore, um, you know, the kind of pressure to fit in to a predominant culture, which is a white culture while still staying true to your own identity. And I, and I think I'll you know as a white person, I think there's always that fear of like well, if celebrating difference runs the risk of like oh my gosh, i don't want to say something of that's a stereotype or something that's offensive can Can you talk a little bit more that about that dynamic um, of staying true to yourself versus working to fit in or changing the culture
0: mm-hmm. yeah uh, you know the, the book as you know, is the work product of our lived experience, but also having interviewed dozens of other African-Americans who have succeeded in their respective fields, corporate America, entrepreneurship, faith-based, nonprofit, education, and asked them, how did you make it to the top and not lose a sense of who you are? And there's these 10, what we call game-changing strategies that are cumulative. Each strategy builds upon the next, meaning that strategy one, is what we found to be the most foundational, the most foremost, the most fundamental strategy of all 10. And you just touched on it, Mark, it is about establishing a strong identity and purpose. And and the idea here is when you are underrepresented and you don't see reflections of yourself and you see the the predominant culture around you, the proclivity can be to adopt the culture, the norms of the majority. You're the only African-American, you act like whites. You're the only woman, you act more male. You're the only immigrant. You try to adopt American mores. And our argument is that if you wanna succeed, rather than seek to assimilate, although we all have to manage our ability to get in where we fit in, but rather know that holding on to who you are, your identity, and knowing what direction you're going, your purpose, are gonna give you the best shot at success because your identity is what grounds you. It's your anchor and your purpose is your compass, it guides you. That when stereotypes come or low expectations come or even racism or discrimination comes without knowing who you are and where you're going, you're like a leaf in the wind. They say you can't do it, you believe them. They tried to deny you, you allow it to happen. You aren't grounded or guided from a sense of purposefulness and strength that can help you to overcome those challenges. And most importantly, 20 30 years later in your career you can still look in the mirror and be proud of the person that you see mm-hmm.
2: Well, and here's how it intersects a lot with uh, you know corporations in corporate america the You know the coping strategy of, of many people of color you know, black people included Is to um, is to bring a facade to work you bring a a version of yourself uh, to work and that's the one that is, you know interacting with your your colleagues. That's not a very Authentic approach, right? It doesn't bring your authentic self into the workplace And and so, you know, th- there's two ways to look at this or well, some people will say, okay Well, that's that's just how, how it is in a corporation. I got to bring my um, you know, My my mask of of the corporation and I'm gonna act a certain way and interact in a certain way and, and, and no doubt every company has this culture and there's some adaptation um, and and perhaps everybody does this to a certain extent. I would argue that um, so many people of color do it more than everybody else uh, because their authentic uh, self, their their culture that they bring uh, sort of from their their life often is in uh, it's either in conflict or in some cases. Uh, You know, just not rewarded, just not acknowledged, just not uh, thought of as being, um, you know, part of the executive presence or whatever it is that people people say these days. Mm. So, you know, there's a lot of thought work that goes into that. And while you're trying to figure that out, you're also supposed to do your job. So what other workplaces have figured out is can we allow our employees to bring their authentic self or as much as they, they, they feel comfortable with? And they find that when people are able to bring their authentic self um you know they 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 can relax and perform in higher levels because they're not doing uh, a lot of this uh you know sort of extra work um to 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 think and rethink how they're going to say something and 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 that's a you know that's that's a that's a new way of thinking i mean the 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 um the corporation of the seventies and eighties was you you you, you suit up. You come in and you take on the persona of whatever the company man or woman is. Um, and what, I'm, what we're seeing and hoping in some cases uh, in, the, in 2020 is that companies are starting to see that that uh, forcing people to conform in those ways um, has uh, detrimental effects mm-hmm. in the long run.
1: And you know, I'll you know admit that until recently, I had not thought much about the phrase "white privilege" or the reality of that. And I think, as you're describing it, the 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 privilege of the luxury of not being, not not being distracted from my own work and attempts at progressing in my career by those thoughts of. Am I being given a fair shot because of the color of my skin? Am I fitting right. in? Do, do do I feel like I'm? You know, uh, do people feel like I belong here? And I, you know, I'm just thinking back to um, college when I was doing an internship at one of the uh, automakers outside of Detroit, and one of uh, one of the other uh, engineering interns um, who, who was black. Mm-hmm. He told a couple of us. The rest of us were white, so he was very much a black face and a white yep. face. Um, Over lunch telling us a story about how uh, he cut off his dreadlocks Before he came and interviewed for the job because he 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 feared that that wouldn't be seen as professional now You know, this was over 25 years ago, but I can't imagine that's gone away
2: Yeah, yeah, certainly in some places it has Um, and and that's a that's an example, you know, the the whole um, You know discussion of hair for, for men, but you know for the longest time it was a conversation focused on women in the workplace especially women of color what uh, what hair do i bring to work um and then people um you know put focusing a lot more attention on you because of your hair or your appearance and and yeah there, there is a there are people who've written about this for sure talking about um you know how they have to navigate a completely um you know different situation from From the time you leave your home to getting to work and how do I look and how does this look fit into the corporate norm? And so, yeah, back to white privilege, white privilege is, well, I don't even have to think about that. I just go in and be who I, you know, who I am. Mm -hmm. But the fact is who you are is reflected in everything around you inside of the company or for that matter, society. And so that, um, that, Means that uh, you don't have to worry about um, hair or how you look or um, how people are going to perceive you if you uh, contradict them or other things. That is, uh, you know, part. You know, that's the way that things are, mm-hmm. and so it's it's everybody else who has to come into it. And so that that's why in this moment in 2020 we are, uh, you know, all focusing more attention on uh, what does inclusion mean. Um, we you know how do we. Uh, reduce the levels of white privilege in our company so that we can engage everyone in their authentic place and get the, you know, the highest performance in order for us to achieve our goals.
1: Um, You you mentioned earlier, Jeff, you know, you talked about the dynamic of um, someone being the first uh, black man to reach a certain position or the first black woman. And and I wanted to ask a question about something I see as kind of a, a disturbing pattern on LinkedIn where, you know, for one, I'll see a headline where I think my, my reaction is, oh, well, good, great, congratulations, it's about time. We see, you know, the first black woman hired as such and such. And then the inevitable triggering of other white people who jump in with comments, varying degrees of rudeness. like, Well, why does that matter? And shouldn't it just say... Um, so-and-so got hired, just use her name. And why do we have to point that out? I mean, what, um, you know, thoughts, do you have thoughts on why that's necessary to, to call out and celebrate yeah. when somebody is the first to reach a certain position, even seven, what, uh, seven, how many years since Jackie Robinson? Yeah. Yeah. Baseball. Um, there are still these firsts. Why, why is that worth calling out and celebrating?
2: Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. And, and, you know, certainly it goes back to the you know, conversation about colorblindness. Some people don't want to, to see color. So, you know, it, it, it offends them in some way that uh, we're acknowledging that you know, somebody is the, is the first. Um, you know, when uh, Randall and I've talked about this before, um, part of it is, is, is certainly about signaling um, to, to the public. Hey, we are an inclusive company, but you know, there's a part of me that also says, well, "Why did it take so long?" <laughs> it's 2020. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, Randall, I know, I know you like this subject.
0: Go ahead. <laughs> well, it, I, 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 I hasten to to echo your your, your comments, Je- Jeffrey. The uh, it, it is absolutely rooted and connected to the. The, the the myth of of color blindness and 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 it is important I we believe to, to celebrate and to highlight these these accomplishments because of The exact example I gave earlier from dr. J, dr. May jameson That it, that these are both signs of progress and signs of hope Signs that we've made progress in our society. Like, like we we celebrated, uh, barack obama's um, Election, you know, and, and I was proud in that moment to see that you know, every news outlet that I turned to, regardless of their partisanship, celebrated the moment of what it meant for our country. Uh, and, and, and in an equal measure, because there are still hurdles we haven't overcome, there's still barriers that remain a standing, and there are proverbial glass ceilings that have yet to be shattered, the struggle continues. And, you know, I wanna know, uh, that That University of Pennsylvania hired a, a black woman as their dean for their business school because now I know University of Pennsylvania has sent a message to me that in that moment and through that measure they are more inclusive more diverse, more equitable more be- and more a sense of belonging um, by my estimation than they were before that 's a sign of progress and a sign of hope
1: so um You know, Randall. When you talk about being the first, I I, I was going to ask this, so I'll go ahead and segue to it. You you were, I think, you know, quite famously the first and only, as it turned out, black winter winner on uh, The Apprentice. Um, And and you know, you you were treated very differently as the winner. Um, I I kind of invite you to tell the story, if you don't mind, about about what happened and, and some of the dynamics of why you were treated differently than the other winners.
0: So I should mention that this is, it's fresh on my mind because my my, my daughter uh, found the episodes of the show online and, and we ended up watching uh, the entire season together, uh, wow. which was a fascinating, way of reliving the experience through the
1: eyes of someone who wasn't even born when it, when it happened. <laughs>
0: That's right.
1: <laughs> wow. And you probably haven't watched it yourself in a very long time.
0: Not, not from end to end. I've seen snippets, but not from the beginning to the very end. I, 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 I really enjoyed the journey. Uh, but, but to your question, there were seven seasons of the apprentice, uh, six uh, where there were white winners, and then one where I was the winner. I'm the only person of any color to have one on The Apprentice. And uh, I was season four, so I was right in the middle of the run of The Apprentice. And after I was hired, and for those who are listening who, and watching who aren't familiar with the show, it's 18 business people who compete every week on a task. There's a losing team, someone's fired, all the way down to the final two, live television. Jeff was in the audience, Uh, Lincoln Center, 14 million people. Uh, I was hired in that moment. uh, And without getting into too much detail of my performance against my adversaries, which was not equally matched, uh, moments after being hired, I was asked, Randall, do you want to share the title with the white female runner-up? And my thoughts then are quite proudly my thoughts now. It was insulting. It was a moment where people asked, well, uh, let me cut cut ahead. So my response was, if there's going to be a winner tonight, there's going to only be one, and it's going to be me. That was my response. Um, I know that because I just watched the episode just just recently. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But then people kept asking, well, why didn't you share, Randall? Why didn't you do the magnanimous thing and share? My response is, no, 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 no. Not why didn't I share. Why did he ask the question? In the first place, if there were three whites before me, who were not asked to share. And there were three whites after me who were not asked to share. Why am I being asked to share? And so the question is not on me, the question's on him. And I would argue that in 2020, we had the benefit of hindsight being 2020, no pun intended, 2020, (laughs)
2: uh,
0: that it was only a harbinger, my estimation of things to come uh, from the man who would now occupy the White House that um, he didn't want to see me as the sole and single winner. And my message that night is my message today. It was my message to my daughter. And I said this to her in that moment, after she watched it and said, Why did he do, you do it? I said, Well, let me tell you what. Know this when you've earned the victory, don't be a- afraid to claim the victory. And I claim what I rightfully earned.
1: Well, those were the rules of the game. Um, my wife and I watched every episode of that season. We I, we were cheering for you. I mean, I claim, you know, MIT connections and I'd only met you briefly at school, but that was a, you know, a powerful connection and we were rooting for you. And you no, know, but anyway, but you know, thinking back to along the way, um, did you feel like, was that, I mean, that moment was surprising, but were, were there, were, were there, you know, kind of biases or mistreatment that, prejudice you know, that, that, that came out along the way during those different weeks of, of those competitions or in boardroom moments? That's a, it's a great question. And um, the mechanics of the filming of The
0: Apprentice is that we actually have very little contact with Donald during the filming because he is largely there to announce the task, go away, <laughs> come back, tell you who won, go away. And only if you lose, do you then see him again in the boardroom. Um, so I, you know, and as the winner, I, I didn't see him much in the boardroom. Um, so I, I didn't have much substantive contact with Donald during the filming of the show. And so the answer to that question is I is actually no. Although I did hear the rumors leading up to the finale that he was considering asking me to share, or that he he might consider a double hiring. And J- Jeff knows because we prepared uh, he and I and our executive team at BCT for the various scenarios, mm. including close to the one that unfolded. But then I worked for the Trump organization after I won. And there I began to see a different side. Um, And to our whole conversation, I was the only person of color in any executive capacity for my entire year in the Trump organization. And Donald at the time had some order of 30 companies under his umbrella, many of which are now gone and defunct. But I met many of the executives who ran those companies, mostly white men. Mm-hmm. And so it said something to me about does or does not Donald value diversity? Does he value equity? Does he value inclusion? And as the guy who he asked to share, does he value me? And I can only draw the conclusion from his pattern then and now that the answer was no. The answer was no.
1: It, it's interesting to think about that being a prize. I mean, I'm sure it was an education that <laughs> was maybe not what you were hoping to get when you first applied to be on the show.
2: <laughs> the prize was education, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, and I, and I have no
0: regrets. Uh, I mean, I had a great run on the show. It opened doors. People hear me talk critically about Donald as if I'm not appreciative of what The Apprentice has done for me. No, quite the contrary. I am very appreciative of what The Apprentice has done for me. We wouldn't be having this conversation were it not for The Apprentice. But I have to be true to myself and say that I can be appreciative of the door that was opened, but also be critical of the person who opened the door. And, 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 and that's the juxtaposition where I find myself. So, so it was a great prize, opportunity, platform, however we term it. Uh, but the, but, but I, I'm also critical of, of Donald in the, in the same vein. As we all have our work to do, Lord knows Donald has his own work to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, now, Jeff, what what are your recollections of of some of that scenario planning or, or trying to anticipate what was going to happen there?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. We it was a serious effort. We had to kind of play out different different scenarios, different situations that could happen, and and try to anticipate the reaction. and um, And do we, you know, the reality is we knew that there. If if he answered the way he actually did there'd be some blowback. There'd be some people out there who would not like the fact that, uh, you know, you know, he didn't share or, or whatever. And, you know, we said, okay, well, we we're willing to, to you know, Randall, are you willing to take on that heat? Um, you know, to stand on principle. And, and, and he was, and I'm glad that he, glad that he was, but yeah, there was, there was a robust, uh, group of folks out there who were, um, you know, very uh, antagonistic towards Randall in 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 that moment. And again, just uh, just watching the whole thing um happen live is 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 amazing. As as you already know, we, we start the book with the whole conversation about how, um, as Randall described it, how you know how it all went down. Uh and that became um a, an organizing uh you know kind of um story for the beginning of our book. Um and you know it's, it's been a few years since we've written it now. Uh, and I'll tell you tell you the truth. I thought that when we wrote the book, I thought, oh, you know, we've got President Obama in here. Things are getting better. You know, um, by the time my children are old enough to read this book, it won't even be that, that necessary. <laughs> uh, let's just say I was wrong on that one. And you know, now we're. And now we're we're on to the next book.
1: (laughs) Right. So the next book, um, Black Faces in High Places. And do do you have an estimated um, release date for that?
0: I think our estimate is uh, Black History Month 2021. Uh, (laughs) Our manuscript is due, I think, in November and, and and we're behind right now. We need to catch up. Uh, and knowing the publishing cycle, as I believe we do, we're probably looking at at, at best a late 2020, at best an early 2021 uh, release of the book. But we're we're really excited about this project. Uh, you know, uh, the 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 first book was you know was very well received, and we've gotten uh, consistent you know positive feedback. It went paperback and the like. Uh, But this second book is really uh, a continuation of the conversation that we've been having about how do you navigate these environments and uh, I would contrast the two uh, Works to say that the first book is
1: about how do you get to the top and the second book is how do you stay at the top? Mm -hmm. And um, you know, so thinking about the books, I mean it was your target audience I, I could see benefit imagine a lot of your target was, was providing advice to let's say black students and, and black people who were early in their career. But then as a white reader, there was a certain kind, you know, perspective sharing that was, was, um, was certainly interesting and, and helpful. Um, but, you know, I, I was wondering if you could touch on that or, you know, something else I wanted to ask, um, you know, sort of, you know, thinking, um, you know, turning um, white places into more inclusive places. What 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 can, what what should, what do white people need to do? Because that burden I think falls here. And I and, and part of my discomfort, I don't even like to call myself a white person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. So forgive my awkwardness over stumbling through a question there, but but what what are your thoughts there? I, I guess I was asking about, you know, target audience for the book, but then that other question of what can we do to help create more inclusive workplaces.
2: Which one you want to take there, Randall? Number one or number two?
0: <laughs> I'll, I'll follow you. You can pick, and and then I'll 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 pick up the what, what's left. Well, you, you know, the book certainly has an audience with uh, black
2: professionals from different sectors of, of the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we all, we we also know that the book has been useful for. You know, for whites who read it or for people of other ethnic backgrounds to, who, who read the book they want to get a perspective we we wrote a book from you know a distinctly black perspective um, and you know we from our own experience and experience of others but uh, you know it certainly has application to others you know the, the principles and thoughts um, the strategies certainly apply to anybody who's been in that situation where they're you know the one or the only one or they get to a certain, in our new book context, you know, getting to a certain part of the organization, the higher heights, and you know, asking themselves the question, you know, am I? Um, you know, what am I, Where are my responsibilities? What? What am I? Uh, what? Where? What? How do I think about uh, getting here? And then how do I think about staying here? Um, how do I think about the people who are coming behind me? Uh, and so, you know, the, those are some of the themes that that um, I'm sure. I, Many people will will resonate with, but again, you know, we wrote it with the uh, black community of, of professionals in in uh, you know, in mind.
0: Sure. No, you know, abs- absolutely. And to the second question of how do we create more inclusive workplaces, I, I would distill it into three three steps. You know, uh, and I'm thinking about you know organizations in, in particular. But uh, let me. Uh, actually, contextualize it two ways. I think from an individual perspective, it begins with us. Uh, we have to do the work of um, educating ourselves um, on issues of uh, of equity, and part of that is uh, re- kind of introspection, raising our awareness of our biases. You know, we talk about cultural competence as being comprised of four components: cultural awareness cultural knowledge, cultural skills, and cultural encounters. You know, building your awareness of your biases, building your knowledge of different cultures, building your skills around cross-cultural communication, negotiation, conflict resolution, and then challenging yourself to move beyond your comfort zone to have encounters with difference. And you can take that along any lines, different religions, different ideologies, different ethnicities, different cultures, different languages, etc., different political ideologies. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. That's the individual conversation The organizational one is about assessment alignment and action Let's assess where we are uh, Each organization has a different profile of where it has strengths and where it has limitations But let's get the evidence to know What we need to measure so we can manage ourselves towards improving like we would any other initiative whether it's marketing or sales or operations we get the data to build the case to build a plan. And so the assessment to the alignment, the alignments let's build a plan that aligns with our organizational identity, mission, vision, values, and our strategic direction so that we can get leadership buy-in. We can get the business case for how this can add value. We can have alignment across all levels of the organization so that we're galvanized to facilitate transformative cultural change. And then let's take action like any other initiative, let's do the training, let's hold the town halls, let's uh, you know expand our recruiting partnerships, let's analyze our pipeline to figure out where we have attrition and so that we can bolster our efforts and let's just take action to feed back to where we started, which is the evidence so that we're measuring ourselves. And you can appreciate this, Mark, because I know where you come from, continuous improvement, right? I know you've talked about that more than once on this program, continuous improvement. Right. Right.
1: Well, so with improvement often comes talk of innovation. And Jeff, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your work at Rutgers Business School and trying to help in the innovation economy, um, helping that be more inclusive. And is is there also a a real business case?
2: Oh, yes. Uh, Great. I'm glad you started that way. I mean, there's there's certainly, you know, a social justice imperative to these things. But let's talk about the, you know, the economic imperative here. Uh, you, you you have to think about this in, in, a, in a micro sense and a macro sense. So in the micro sense, um, there's you know, I- inclusive teams, diverse teams uh, can outperform, can be more creative than uh, than teams that just have, you know, just monochromatic or that are. Uh, monolithic in some ways you know there's not only is the group thing that goes on there you don't get to the most creative solutions but you know you can make those 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 big faux pas those uh, those those you know, i've seen all kinds of companies make these major mistakes in um, terms of how they advertise and market their products or how they are engaging um, the the people who they want to buy the products because they didn't have a diverse team and you know, engaged in putting together the plan. I mean that those are you know those are those are facts. Um, you know, there's lots of uh, research studies that talk about uh, diverse teams and the value of diversity on from, in terms of a business case and getting to the best solutions, but especially in creative work, and especially in work uh, where where those different perspectives can be valued and, and utilized. I mean, it's 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 a there's a there's a a specific case there on the macro side of things um there you can't maintain the sort of national innovation edge that we have right now in the united states without engaging um the energies the efforts of all the people in the u.s as demographics begin to change if we can if we're only relying upon you know um, white males as the as the the uh, sort of uh, generator of innovation, that's going to leave us in a really bad place. So, what we need to be doing is making sure that innovation includes everybody, um, that it includes women, that includes people of color, that includes people with different um, perspectives and, and, and brings them to the table, not only to create um, better products or better technologies, but also uh, to engage in the long haul. In uh, uh, promoting and, and creating this innovation economy, so that's the the economic case, that's the business case, and um, a lot of my work at Rutgers these days is around thinking about that in tech firms and venture venture firms and and sort of the, the STEM pipeline, but certainly in how we fund and support um, innovation in the country.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like one other way um, looking at it. if you if you are selling products. To a very diverse market, absolutely. Not having uh, having a team that's not diverse is going to create blind spots in what you think or know, what you think you know. The market wants in different ways.
2: That's right, right. That's absolutely right.
1: Well, um really want to thank um, want to thank both of you, and I, I, I do want to make the point just bringing it back to the apprentice once more for anyone who would accuse Randall of not sharing. Um I had reached out and asked uh, Randall to do the podcast, and very immediately he said we should share that with Jeff, so <laughs> I mean, that's right your your, your character um, coming through there in, in terms of my gosh, willingness to share. Um, but um, you know, I uh, really really appreciate um, letting me ask some questions, even if they come from a place of. Awkwardly trying to figure out and and and, you know, and, and trying to learn. Um, so so thank you um, for for allowing that and um, for for being guests here today and, and what I know are very busy schedules. So you know our guests have been Dr. Randall Pinkett and uh, Dr. Jeffrey Robinson. Um, is there anything else? You know, I can give you the last word if there's any other final thought you might want to share with the audience here.
0: Yeah, I, I will say this to. Uh, continue the the thread that, that that you that you laid out and say th- this this is how change occurs. It, it, it's through dialogue, and it's through moving beyond our comfort zone into our growth zone. Uh, and so, I, I say all the time, and I'm going to say it now: uh, into that discomfort, Mark, because uh, that means you're growing. And, and, and that means you're a better person today than the one you were yesterday. So uh, don't see the discomfort as, as, as bad. Not that you said that you saw it as bad. But rather, I'm excited to know that you've, you've challenged yourself to have, a, to have these, this conversation. Um, and even if it was at times awkward or uh, difficult to navigate, you flexed your muscle of cultural competence, which means it's now stronger. Um, And you can test it out in, you know, one-on-ones and then two-on-ones. And then next thing you know, it's a hundred on one where you're able to find your voice in greater measure. Uh, Because to get back to where I started with one of your early questions, talking about the moment now where uh, whites may be, white people may be more reticent, we need your voices now more than ever. Um, And so I thank you not just for the invitation, but I thank you for your voice um, and for Uh, engaging in this dialogue and moving us all from our comfort zone into
1: our growth zone. So thank you, Mark. Thank you. Well, thanks. And in in my defense, I can be plenty awkward talking about just about anything. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't worry about that reflecting badly on all MIT graduates or on all white people. Equal (laughs) opportunity. (laughs) Um, um, Jeff, is there anything else that you would? uh,
2: No, I think Randall said it well. Uh, We thank you for having us on the show. All right.
1: Thank you very much.